Good morning. I'll be reading this morning from the book of Mark and chapter 1. Leighton's going to go through the shortest gospel with the fastest velocity. No, just kidding. We're only going to do eight verses this morning. Uh, we're going to read Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. It's up on the screen if you want to follow along with me or you can grab your devices slash Bibles. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. God, thank you for these words that we have read. Thank you that your word is infallible inspiration, truth, and revelation for us. Father, I pray that you would uh, cause us to understand what you want to communicate to us, that our spirits would be open by your Holy Spirit to receive, and not just to understand and receive, but to actually practice and live out what you have caused us to believe. Lord God, I pray that you would uh, bless us as a church this morning. Bless... <clears throat> Bless the, the Hires and the Ibbotsons and uh, the rest of our church family. God, we pray for those that are uh, going through different trials and struggles of any sort this week and pray that you would be their help and not just you, Lord, but that as family we would also be there to help and to support, to give and to share. Lord, I pray uh, for many of us who are um, experiencing good times and, and enjoying life and that, that life that we have, that we would recognize it comes only because of your grace and kindness to us and not because of our own works. And Lord, that we would be thankful people remembering your truth, remembering your kindness and your greatness towards us. And in that humility, we would reach out to many people around us. Father, I pray that you would um, bless our uh, church in all of the different areas, Lord, the Sunday school, the meetings that we have during each week, the small group meetings. I pray that in every time, in every place that we get together, that your word would be proclaimed, not just in this building, but in our houses, not just in our houses, but in our workplaces, Lord that we would be people that would share truth of Jesus Christ wherever we meet, wherever all the people that we meet. Thank you, God, for your uh, help, for your grace in every part of our lives. You are good to us. You have sent us Jesus. You have given us life, and we thank you for all of 
creation and the blessings we have in this time while we are here on earth. In Jesus' name. There we go. Good morning. I'm going to tell you a cowboy story. Woo! It's a western about a stranger, a mysterious man who just seems to show up one day. We don't know from where. It doesn't start with him, though. It starts with another fella, somebody who knows this stranger, somebody who can vouch for his character. And the townsfolk ask, is this man our salvation? Then the voiceover comes on, and it says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Then, like every good Western, we are forced to ask, who is this man? Why is he here? Will he prevail? So right away, we know something of the main character. And maybe we can guess at his task. The action pulls us along. And this is how the book of Mark starts. And it's actually very exciting. Mark is fast-paced. It's a race to the climax. He moves us from snapshot to snapshot at full gallop. Sometime, some 40 times, Mark jumps to the next scene with the words, and immediately. Or if you're a King James person, it says, and straight away. This is as if to say that Jesus never slept. In fact, in the book of Mark, Jesus sits down to explain himself to his disciples just twice in the entire gospel. Once in chapter 4, and again in chapter 9. Okay, he falls asleep in a boat, and he sits on a colt, but you get the idea. This man is in motion. Mark drops us right into the action. There's no birth narrative. There's no escape to Egypt. There's no preteen Jesus schooling the scholars while his parents search desperately for him. There's no background story for anyone else either. Nothing about John the Baptist's miraculous birth. We just begin where Jesus' ministry begins, and we end where his earthly ministry ends. And it's an exhilarating flight. Now, The book of Mark has gotten a bad rap for being brief and disjunct. In it, the life of Jesus is either highly edited or all jumbled up, depending on one's attitude. From the book of John, we know that Jesus went to Jerusalem at least three times for the Passover. But Mark has him going there only once. What happened to the other trips? What happened to Jesus' sermons? They're largely missing. What about the uh, parables? Sorry. Mark only gives us four. Instead, Mark prefers to catch just the highlights of Christ's life 
and he squeezes them into a single story that you can probably read in less than two hours. Mark aggressively shapes the story. He totally omits some parts of Jesus' life, moving around other parts for narrative's sake. And because of this, and because it's short, for centuries, Mark was considered the inferior gospel. Between its writing and the early 20th century, we have just a few references and commentaries about Mark compared to the other gospels. That's almost 2,000 years of being ignored. Writers during this time thought Mark's harsh array of snapshots and rapid pace was, and I will quote, like a child threading beads. It's really only in the 19th century that scholars have changed their tune, concluding that Mark was likely the first written account of Jesus Christ's life. And then Matthew and Luke actually based their Gospels on his. <clears throat> Excuse me. On Tuesday, Josh told me that he's studying Luke and Acts. And one way that they assume that Luke used Mark's work and not the other way around is because Luke cleans up all Mark's poor grammar. At any rate, in this century, Mark has received thousands upon thousands of treatises now. And he's no longer, it's no longer seen as a poor table of contents for the other synoptic gospels. Now, why do I tell you this? Because Mark has been dismissed by many as rough and inadequate. And I can attest from my own life to not paying Mark much more attention than going through it in an annual reading plan. But in learning all I can in preparation to speak to you from this scripture, I can tell you that Mark is well-made. It's well-made for its purpose, and it's razor-sharp in its execution. Now, here's why. Everything fits into a twofold purpose, revealing who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. That's it. That's his crucible, and it's very precise. If a detail didn't absolutely fit his narrow purpose, he just didn't include it. Now, Mark knows how to spin a tale. He's a mastered storyteller, a real raconteur, retelling a story that draws you in and never lets you relax your attention, not even for a second. Now, try saying that about Matthew or Luke's long genealogies or John's deep theologies. The gospel of Mark is crafted, having the kind of detail that elevates the scene and engages the listener. This book is written to be heard, to be read out loud. Now, you may think that's a funny thing to say about a book written in a time and a place where there was maybe 10% literacy, but I'll put it this way. Where the other gospels are large and rich and are meant to be poured over, read, pondered, preached, Mark is written to be spoken out loud. It's written to be memorized, and dare I say, performed in one shot in front of a crowd. And I'm going to dare a little further even to emphasize what I think is going on and say to you that I believe Mark really looks like a stage drama. 
One commentator even described it as a classic Greek tragedy. Because as we learn more and more about our protagonist, he becomes less and less understood by those he meets, culminating in his zenith of popularity one week and his brutal rejection and death the next. Now, I'm not saying this is a script, but it is written in a very specific manner, and that's what I want to communicate here. Thank goodness this isn't a tragedy, hey? Thank goodness Christ has risen. Now, this is the gospel. God comes in flesh to a world that has rejected him. God so loved the world that he's invited all to trust in him. But everyone is dead. And not only that, the Bible says we are happily dead. We are suppressing the truth. So, the Holy Spirit calls some to spiritual life. That he has mercy on anyone is incredible. It is impossible. It is impossible for holiness to come near abomination without destroying it. That's the glory of God, that he has made a way to come near sinful humans. In Christ's death and resurrection, there is the hope of being near God. That is, impo- that is the impossible thing. But Christ makes it possible. Mark is like a drama in three parts. Well, four, if you want to count the little introduction. Mark tells Jesus' story in four locations. We'll see today the book of Mark begins in the wilderness of the Jordan River, far removed from the civilization of the city of Jerusalem and probably just as far away from the agricultural orderedness of Galilee. I'll say it here, the wilderness is key to biblical beginnings. No one comes from cultivation. All pass through uncharted wild. And the wild is a place of testing, a place of danger, a place of challenge. Uh, In university, an anthropology professor opened my eyes to this idea. Wilderness is scary. We don't think like this anymore. We go to the wilderness to get away from it all. We take our tents. We go on safari, maybe. But up until really, really recent, the wilderness meant death and terrors. No one went on the ocean just for fun. No one left what they knew to go to the wild, to go camping. In 1916, the U.S. National Parks Service was started. And that's one of the first times in, in literature that wilderness was looked at for the pleasure and benefit of the people. This shocked me. I want it to be profound to you. The wilderness is scary. 
How does the Bible begin? The wild is what God tames. When things were formless and void, dark and deep, God orders it. The wild is where God sends Adam and Eve. It's where he meets Abram, and eventually with Abram's family, Israel, as they walk 40 years in the wild. The desert wild is where God molds and makes his prophets, and it's where both the ministries of John the Baptist and Jesus begin. After the introduction, Act 1 of Mark takes place in Galilee, and it's very public. There's lots of healings. There's lots of miracles. Act 2 is Christ's journey to the cross. From Galilee to Jerusalem, it's solitary, just Jesus and his close followers. They are often escaping the crowds, traveling outside of Jewish lands. And this is largely a time of preparation in the wild and in training and discipleship. Finally, in Act 3, it's Jesus' passion in Jerusalem. And he's abandoned by absolutely everyone. And he's crucified and he's buried but he rises again. Before we look into the first few verses of Mark, I'm going to do something a little unorthodox. I'm going to give you homework now. Sometime soon, I'd like you to watch Alec McCowan's Gospel of Mark. It is a recitation of Mark. It's just a man in a sweater but it's witty, and it's charming, and it is riveting. It is a Shakespearean soliloquy. So write that down or give me a text. It is, it is worth your hour and a half, for sure. I'd also really like you to try reading Mark in one sitting. Tell me about it. How long did it take? What did you feel or find out? because we tend to just look at Mark, Matthew, most of the Bible in little chunks, maybe a verse or two, maybe we sit down for a half hour for devotions, but this is a story, end to end. Let's pick up our text at Mark 1, verse 1. In the beginning, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And this is likely both the title of the book and the first line. And it speaks volumes for those who are interested. Right away, we as the audience get an insight that the rest of the characters don't yet have. Because of this narrative voice, we are compelled to go on from here looking to verify, to validate from the rest of the story if this is gospel. Is this good news? Is Jesus the long-awaited Christos, which is Greek for anointed one? The voice says he's a divine being. Can he really be the Son of God? In this way, we follow two journeys through the story. We follow our own and that of the characters interacting with this mysterious man. Will they conclude, as the narrator does, 
that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? And if they don't, will it cause us to reassess our own path, asking if we too have missed something? Will their lack of faith raise awareness of our own? You read the Bible, you might have heard this, but the Bible reads you. Verses 1 to 3. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And the first thing I want to do, can you go to the one, one back? Uh, is tell you that, behold, I send my messenger before your face, comes from the Old Testament, and it ends like this, and he will prepare the way before me. But here, what does Mark say? Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. And so this is about discipleship. This is about you and I, those who are following the message that the messenger is giving. And then it says, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Make ready for the anointed one. Now verse 2 is a funny statement. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Because... Mark is quoting more than just Isaiah. It seems he's too speedy to even give full reference where reference is due. This voice in the, in the desert is a mashup of Malachi and of Isaiah. And while both prophesy about the Lord's return and the messenger that comes before him, Isaiah comes from a context of gladness and reassurance, and Malachi bears a warning. Let's look at Malachi. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. Now look at Isaiah. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry for her, that cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, what can we say about these two verses? Well, first, something big is about to happen. Something anticipated by the Jewish people for a thousand years, more. And second, while it will usher a time of joy and comfort for some, not all will find comfort and peace in the Lord's return. Scholars say that this was a very exciting time. 
there was a nationwide buzz. News was traveling fast. The atmosphere was electric, as they say. And it was because of one man. But it wasn't Jesus, if you are hazarding a guess. Mark 1, 4, and 5. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance and the forgiveness, for the forgiveness of sin. And all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. The people were not just going out to have a look-see. Mark says all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to repent and be baptized. Could this John be the messenger who would foretell of the Lord's return? Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Joel, many other prophets foretell of a coming day when God would inaugurate a new relationship between himself and his people. A time where his spirit is visibly active, where Israel's supremacy and God's rule will be decisive and firmly established. Listen to this. This is what Israel was anticipating. Ezekiel 36, 23 to 28. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Would you read with me Jeremiah 31, 33 to 34? But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And then, there's this little tidbit. <clears throat> the whole of the Old Testament ends with these words. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of destruction. And then there's quiet. Between the Old and New Testaments, there's 400 years of silence. Nothing from God. No prophet in Israel. So this John of the desert starts a nationwide boil. Verse 6, Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist 
and ate locust and wild honey. The first part, at least, comes from Second Kings. He, King Isaiah, said to them, What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you of these things? And they answered him, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. So important, so influential is the example that Elijah sets for being a prophet that in Zechariah 13, it says, On that day, every prophet, and this is every false prophet, will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies, and he will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive. But will say, I am no prophet. I am a worker of the soil, for a man sold me in my youth. Why the buzz? John the baptizer appears in the desert like Elijah. And he sure looks and sounds like Elijah. He makes his own clothes, finds his own food, which means he isn't beholden, not to any sect, not to any patron. He looks set apart, different, and singular in his ambition. Now what's so incredible about John's ministry was that up until now, a Jew would never get baptized. Why would they need to? They were the chosen people of God. They had the whole sacrificial system to cleanse them from sin. But they so anticipated the prophecies and so respected John that people went out in droves, repenting of their sins and submitting to baptism. Up until this point, baptism was a ritual used only for the unclean. Lepers defiled by disease and Gentile proselytes wanting to become Jews. These were adult converts wanting to proclaim the end of their old life, the end of their old citizenship, and they would be plunged under the symbolic waters of death and rise up afresh, symbolizing the beginning of a new life as one of God's own people. Our baptism nowadays finds its roots way back, farther in history than Jesus and John. Now, I'm not studied in this part, and we don't have the time to properly address what I'm about to say, but there are indicators that the religious Judaism of the day was in utter disrepair. Temple worship no longer had the spiritual signs present in the past. Both priests and people were alike acting wickedly as if there were no God. And part of the rise of the Pharisees was in their call to rigor and to holiness through strict adherence to the law because they would argue that not every Jewish person automatically was a chosen one of God anymore. So when John comes and says, just because you're a Jew doesn't mean you're right with God, people listened and they jumped in line to follow his instructions for repentance and cleansing. The excitement was building because many people recognized that a big change was not only coming, but it was necessary. Not only were the Jewish people floundering religiously, but politically they were ruled by the iron fist of Rome. Maybe, just maybe, the fulfillment of the prophecies of old was at hand. Shh! 
they'd whisper. Let's listen to what John has to say. Verse 7 and 8. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I. Yes, that's what we're expecting. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. That's quite a statement. Hebrew slaves could not be forced to untie somebody's sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Okay, okay. Putting this all together, we know what this means. Our God is on the move again. We're going to close today with Joel chapter 2. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will, those days I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire, columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. When the mysterious stranger comes, some will find great comfort, some will be afflicted, some will survive, and some will not. Now we're about to share communion together. And as the servers come up and the worship team does, I want you to consider the twofold purpose of Mark. What do you believe about Jesus of Nazareth? And what does it mean to be a disciple of his? Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you have revealed yourself. We would not know you. We would not know of our sin. Lord, we depend upon your revelation in our lives for this knowledge and for the kind of understanding that you grant those whom you are saving. Lord, I pray that you would be working in us by this spirit, this outpouring, this baptism. And Lord, I pray that we would come to you with thanksgiving and go from here with proclamation. Amen.